All right. Well, good evening. It's good to see you tonight. Thanks for coming. Heard there were great services yesterday. Uh, just to, so that I can understand this, how many of you came in today uh, for, for the conference? Okay, good. Thank you guys for coming and being a, a part of the conference. I love Good Shepherd. Uh, I, I received these boots last year from Good Shepherd right there, and I've not taken them off since. They are very, very comfortable, so thank you for that, and it's good to have my younger brother. Uh, and I, I, I wear that badge very, very proudly that I am the older of the two. It must be very difficult to be Dean and to have people think that we're brothers when he's so much younger than I and looks the same age as I do. So <laughs> it, it must be difficult, but somehow he bears. Hey, can I just say uh, the music has been wonderful. Didn't expect anything different, in just, uh, but it, the music's been great. And thank you, choir, for that incredible song. Wow, wow. Uh, that just, uh, that lit my fire. That was awesome. And so thanks for your prayers. We had a little bit of difficulty getting in today. Uh, but, you know, I, I try to, I don't do this well, but I, I try when things don't go my way to, to see, Lord, what could you possibly be doing? And it was interesting because, when we checked in for our flight today, we talked to a young lady at the, uh, the baggage check-in counter. And then when our flight was canceled, we had to come back out through security and, and recheck in and come through. And wouldn't you know that we went through the very, very busy airport, and we went through and we spoke to the same lady at the baggage check-in. And I had said the first time through to Dean, I said, you know, I just have a burden for this young lady. And then the Lord put us back there. We are able to talk to her a little bit about the Lord and, and give her some resources. Uh, so who knows? Who knows but that God didn't cancel uh, the flight so that we could come back around and talk to one person about Christ. Her name is Lizzie. Her name is Lizzie. Would you pray for her? Just as the Lord brings her to mind, would you pray for her? And wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if Lizzie came to Christ? And that'd be, that'd be worth a missed flight, wouldn't it? And so praise the Lord for that. I want you to open your Bible tonight to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter number 9. I know that you're tired tonight. I am. <laughs> I was figuring out I've preached 42 times in the last 20 days. So uh, really, it's only three messages. I just changed the title. Uh, but <laughs> 2 Samuel, chapter number 9. I do want you to keep your Bible open. Uh, tonight, I want to work our way through this text. I'm going to do something a little bit different. Uh, let's read through the text. I'll explain a couple things about it as we read through it. And then I'll just give you, I'll basically just give you the outline of the message. So 2 Samuel chapter number 9. And you'll recognize the passage, I think. And then, um, yeah, so let's just begin then in verse number 1. So 2 Samuel chapter number 9 and verse number 1. Well, the Bible says, and David said, do you see that? 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. And David said, is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness? And that word kindness, you and I use maybe a little bit flippantly in, in modern English. Uh, but the word kindness here is so rich. It, 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 it speaks to the unfailing love of God itself. Uh, the unfailing love of God. And so the kindness. Uh, is there any that I may show him kindness? Now watch this. For Jonathan's sake. Is there anybody left alive related to Saul? Because whoever that person is, if he exists, I want to show him a sense of God's love and kindness for Jonathan's sake. Verse number 2 and there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? He said, Thy servant is he. And the king said, Is there yet, is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God? See that? The kindness of God unto him. And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son. Well, that couldn't be a better scenario. I mean, after all, David wants to show somebody from the house of Saul 
kindness for Jonathan's sake. And now a servant of Saul is saying, well, not only is there one left of the house of Saul, but there's one left that is actually related to Jonathan. Matter of fact, it's Jonathan's own son. And there is uh, here, verse number three, uh, uh, a, a, a Jonathan hath yet a son, who, which is lame on his feet. And I, th- I think the point here is, yeah, J- Jonathan, Jonathan has a son, but, but, but he can't do anything for you. He, he, he won't be a benefit to you, David. Understand that a lame person, a handicapped person in the Bible was thought of very lowly. In many cases, a handicapped person was just relegated to a place of begging. And so Ziba said, well, yeah, there, there is somebody that, that to whom you couldn't express this kind of kindness, but, but you probably don't want to. He's probably not going to be able to reciprocate that in any way. He won't be somebody that will be useful to you. Look at verse number four. And the king said unto him, where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, behold, he's in the house of Maker, the, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. You say, where's Lodabar? Exactly. Exactly. Where's Lodabar? It's in the middle of nowhere. Probably the reason why Mephibosheth lived in Lodabar is because there was a fear of David. There was a a fear that anybody that came after Saul, especially one whom Saul hunted all those years, would not be kind to Saul's house. Better to lay low. Better to just be incognito. Better just to live in an out-of-the-way place like Lodabar. It was located on the other side of the Jordan River, all the way up in the mountains of Gilead. At Lodabar, look at verse number 5. Then King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. He must have been very afraid. I mean, he was drinking juice. He was exercising and had stomach problems, I promise you. Look at verse number six. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, there's his name. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence. Now he was afraid. He is being as obsequious as he possibly can. And David said, uh, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, watch it. David said unto him, Fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm not here to do you harm. I'm not here to do you evil. Whatever you're thinking that might happen, get it out of your mind. Watch this. Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake. Well, there it is again. Here's what I want to do. Here's the quality of the expression I want to expressed to you, and here's why. Here's why. For Jonathan's sake. See that? For Jonathan, thy father's sake. And will restore thee all the land of Saul, thy father. Thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What what is thy servant? That thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am. That was an expression to say, I'm a nobody who can do nothing for you. Why would you ever love me? I'm a nobody who can do nothing for you. Why would you ever love me? Look at verse number nine. Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I've given unto thy master's son all that pertain to Saul and to his house. Thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him. Thou shalt bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread all the way at my table. Ziba had 15 sons, 20 servants. Then said Ziba unto the king, According to all that my lord the king shall uh, hath commanded his servant, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all that dwell in the house of Ziba were servants unto Mephibosheth. Look at the last verse we'll read, verse 13. So Mephibosheth dwelt 
in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table, and he was lame on both his feet. Lord, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word. We're grateful for the copy that we have of the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for these folks that have made their way to this room tonight. My, how our hearts have been stirred by the incredible message we heard from our brother. Thank you, Lord, for the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind that you have placed within us as believers. Thank you, Lord, for that. Lord, thank you for the incredible singing we've heard tonight. And behind the excellence of the singing, the powerful lyrics, the way the messages have ministered to our hearts, the musicians, thank you for using them. Lord, thank you for safety that you've granted for us to come to this place. But Lord, all of it, the message, the music, the safety, all of it will have been in vain unless your spirit meets with us tonight. And so, Lord, we're asking that you would make us sensitive to your will, open to whatever it is you want us to do, whatever you want us to change. Lord, we just want you to do a work that is so obvious in these meetings, these days, that any honest observer would have to say, that was God. And so we invite you, Lord, and your presence in a very special way in this room. Even throughout the course of this short message, Lord, I pray that you would make your presence felt among us. Thank you, Lord, for all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter Shorsh. It's a strange name. Peter Shorsh was uh, an amateur journalist who lived in Florida. Matter of fact, he still lives there, still alive. And Peter was uh, driving in St. Petersburg, Florida, not too long ago, and he was listening to the radio. On the radio, the announcer said that a local phenomenon was taking place. The, the local Starbucks coffee shop was having a phenomenon. They were having a, a, a pay-it-forward phenomenon. You know what that is? Do they do that here in Australia every now and then? Or are Australians too cheap to pay it forward? <laughs> you know what that means? That means uh, sometimes at a drive through restaurant, uh, the person will pay for the person behind them, not even knowing them. They call that paying it forward. And so because the person ahead of me bought my meal, then I'm going to buy the meal of the person behind me. They call it paying it forward, paying it forward. And so this local Starbucks had a pay it forward phenomenon going on because it wasn't just one or two, but this, this was happening for hours and no one had broken the chain. Everybody was buying everybody else's coffee. Now, why you would ever buy someone a cup of Starbucks coffee, I will never know, okay? <laughs> But people in Florida can be pretty ignorant. <laughs> and so Peter decided, I want to go down and be a part of this pay-it-forward line at Starbucks. And sure enough, he did. He drove down to that local Starbucks. And sure enough, the line was long, the drive through line for uh, the coffee. But he thought, I'm going to wait and, and get myself a free coffee. And so he waited in line. And sure enough, he got to the place where he had, uh, would pay the, the woman at the, at the drive through window. And she said, now, now sir... Uh, the person in front of you has paid for one of the two coffees you ordered. Would you like to pay it forward? To which Peter responded, no. <laughs> and after eight hours at Starbucks of pay it forward, it stopped at customer number 458. Wow. Peter Schorsch. Now, when you hear that story, you think, well, Peter is quite a cheapskate. But I want you to remind me of the name Peter at the end of the story, at the end of the message, because there's more to the story that I'm telling you. David had been the king in 2 Samuel chapter 9 for quite a few years. 
You know the story about David. You know how David was a shepherd boy. You know how David was anointed by Samuel. You know how David had run for, for a, a season from Saul after the great battle with Goliath and after serving a Saul ably for a few years. So Saul was full of jealousy and David had to be on the run. Remember that? Eventually Saul died at the battle of Gilboa and Saul and his son Jonathan, his other two sons there died and, and David became the king. And David ruled for some time down in a city called Hebron, but eventually he unified the kingdom and ruled from Jerusalem. And uh, uh, after a number of years of ruling in 2 Samuel chapter 9, all of a sudden one day David said, hey, uh, is there anybody left of the house of Saul? And what a strange question. Saul's been dead for years. What a strange question. David has been ruling for years. No longer are the Philistines a problem. No longer are the Ammonites or the, or, or the Moabites or the Syrians or any of the neighbors of Jerusalem uh, and Israel. No longer are, are any of them a problem. I mean, this is the strongest uh, time this country has ever had. And David is the king. Why would he be asking about the house of Saul? He's asking about the house of Saul because David, years before, had a relationship with Jonathan that was so profound. Years before, he had a relationship with Jonathan that was so real that uh, David was making good on a promise he had made uh, 25 years before. Think about that. You think about the promises you've made. Think about the commitments you've made at altars like these and churches like this to the Lord. I wonder, have you been faithful in the commitments you've made to God over that many years? And David was. And so what do I see? I see that David really, in essence, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, like Peter sure should have done, is paying it forward. David is saying, somebody did something for me, and that somebody that did something for me is no longer here physically on this earth, but the somebody that did something for me causes me to want to do something for somebody else. See that? So I want to pay it forward. I want to love forward. That's the title of my message. I want to love forward. I want to love somebody whom I don't even know. I want to love somebody whom I don't even know exists yet because, because he loved me. Listen, because he loved me and he's no longer physically on this earth, I want to love somebody because he loved me. Does that make sense? I want to love it forward. I want to give you three thoughts tonight just by way of the message, that I think will help us to understand what it means to love forward. What, the, what does it mean to love forward? Okay, first of all, uh, let's talk about the basis. Well, what, what is the basis for loving forward? What, what was the basis by which David was able to love forward? Uh, to love somebody whom he had never met. To love somebody who could do nothing to him in response. This man named Mephibosheth, whom David didn't even know existed. How was it that David was able to love him so profoundly and to love him so deeply and to love him in so far that he became like one of his own sons? How did David love forward? What was the basis for that love? I would say this. The basis for loving forward, number one, was the bedrock, is the bedrock love of God itself. The bedrock love of God itself. I mean, did you see what David said three times in the passage? I want to show him kindness. I want to show him the kindness of God. I want to show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. What was David saying? David was saying, listen, this is not me being nice to somebody to be nice to somebody. This is me saying, God, I want to give somebody the very love that God has given me. I think sometimes we need to view the love of God in our life almost as if it's a possession, because indeed it is. And if God has loved you the way that God has loved you, and he has, then that love is like a possession that I have. And I, when I love other people, I'm actually loving them qualitatively with the love of Almighty God. It's not just a love that I conjure up. It's not just a good feeling I conjure up. Because if the only time I love people is when I feel like loving people, I don't love people a lot. I wasn't loving a whole lot of people at the airport today. I can promise you that. But the, but, but the basis for loving God in 2 Samuel chapter 9 was not the, the love of David or something that he could manufacture in his own thought. No, uh, some goodwill that he could manufacture in his own life. No, this was the bedrock love of God itself. What's the basis for loving forward? The bedrock love of God. But what else was the basis for loving forward in David's life? Okay, I'll, I'll say this, the demonstrated love of a friend. How did David know how to love other people? 
David, know, David knew how to love other people because David had learned what love was from other people. You know where you've learned love? You've learned love from other people. That's how God does. Now, it's the love of God. It's, it's the bedrock love of God. But how did you learn the love of God? You learned the love of God through people. I learned it through my mother, a single mom who loved us unconditionally. I learned something about the love of God from the demonstrated love of somebody else. That's how David learned it. David learned love from Jonathan. When Jonathan, who was the heir apparent, when Jonathan, who for all intents and purposes should have been the next king, a Jonathan, who had previously been the hero in Egypt, a Jonathan, who was much older than David, a Jonathan, who gave David his own armor, gave him his own insignia, a Jonathan, who said to David, David, I know that one day you're going to be the king, and I'm just asking you, David, when you become the king, don't forget about me and my family. How, how did David learn love? He learned love from the demonstrated love of a friend. Can I say this? You learn love from the demonstrated love of a friend. The friend that sticketh closer than a brother. He, hereby perceive we the love of God. How, how do we perceive God's love? Hereby perceive we the love of God. Why? Because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And I'm so glad that Jesus loved me in deed and in truth. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his what? Life for his friends. That's how we understand love. By what Jesus did for us. And so what, uh, what, what, what do we see in 2 Samuel chapter 9? We see the basis for loving forward. The bedrock love of God. This is not just good feelings and well wishes for somebody else. No, this is the very love of God demonstrated through uh, the life of a friend. But not only the bedrock love of God and the demonstrated love of a friend, I would say number three, the constraining love of a covenant. The constraining love of a covenant. Uh, what, 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 ha, ha, how do we see the, this love in, in David's life? We see it in the constraining love of a covenant. David felt an obligation. See, I, th I think sometimes we make this mistake. We think that obligation in the Christian life and the motivation of love in the Christian life are mutually exclusive, but they're not. Do you know that, uh, that every believer ought to feel an obligation to love other people? In that sense, there ought to be a sense of uh, a, 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 even a sense of guilt sometimes when we're not loving like we should, when we're not giving like we should. Now, uh, obligation and love are not mutually exclusive. Uh, Paul said, I am debtor, both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. So as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel. I mean, the apostle Paul said, yes, I'm constrained by the love of Christ. It's the love of Christ that constrains me because we thus judge that, that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Yes I'm, yes, I'm constrained by the love of God, but I'm also constrained by the fact that I owe a debt. And what we, what we have in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9 is we have a, a, a man that says, I made a promise 25 years ago in the middle of a field with a man to say, I promise you that I will take care of your family forever. Now, let me ask you a question. Who was there when David made that promise? Nobody but Jonathan. And Jonathan was now dead. And so who's going to hold David accountable for that covenant? God. That's the point. The point is David had a conscience toward God. Why did David, why was David so intent upon loving people? Because David had a conscience for God, toward God. And I wonder, where is that anymore in Bible Christianity? Where is that in our local churches? Where is the conscience toward God? To say, God, I have an obligatory uh, responsibility uh, to love other people for Jonathan's sake. For Jonathan's sake. Why? Because I made a covenant before a holy God. That's a, that's a, that says something about David's conscience, doesn't it? What am I saying? I'm saying it's the basis. It's the basis for loving forward. But watch this, number two tonight. Not only do I see a basis for loving forward, but right here in our text, I see what I'll call the mechanics of loving forward. 
You say, okay, Kurt, I, I've got the basis. It's, it's the love of God. It's not just my well wishes. No, I, I understand uh, that I understand love because of the demonstrated love of a friend. And we understand what love is because Jesus taught us in time and space what love is. And I understand that I have an obligation before a holy God to love people. And sometimes people whom I've, nev- I've never even met. I, I get that, okay. That, then how? How do I do it? What are the mechanics by which I should love forward? Well, w- w- watch what David does here. I think, first of all, in the mechanics of loving forward, there, there was a persevering intentionality. There was a persevering intentionality. You say, what do you mean by that, uh, Pastor Skelly? Here's what I mean. I mean, uh, David didn't take no for an answer. I'm going to find somebody. I'm going to find somebody uh, to love. I'm going to find somebody to sacrifice for. I'm going to find somebody to show the kindness of God. I'm going to find him. He's out there, and I'm going to find him. I wonder, is there a persevering intentionality to the way that you love people? Because love at its core is a decision to love in spite of your feelings. Is there a persevering intentionality about loving people? I think sometimes we we wait around to feel a certain feeling about people, and then and only then do we love them. No, that's not what David did. David loved somebody without even knowing him. David loved somebody without knowing one, without, without feeling one thing about it. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. The point is that love is a decision. Uh, love is an action. And David had a persevering intentionality about loving people. Well, watch this, number two. Uh, the mechanics of loving forward. I think there was a persevering intentionality, but number two, there was a striking impartiality. That, that's the point in the text. Matter of fact, the, 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 the chapter kind of ends with that. It ends with that, that reiteration. Uh, here's uh, Mephibosheth. He, he's sitting at David's table. He's He's uh, eating as one of David's sons, and he was lame in both of his feet. In other words, there was no physical reason why Mephibosheth should have been treated that way. There was no physical thing that Mephibosheth could do for David. Couldn't fight in a war for him. Couldn't serve as one of his officers. No, he's just a crippled guy that could offer David nothing whom David loved. You know what? You want, to see the, you want to see the quality of a person's love? Watch how they treat people that can do nothing for them. You want to see the quality of a church? Watch how a church treats people that can't do anything for them. I think too often in our churches, we're more than, we're more than willing to be kind to that sharp-looking couple that comes in that could be a really good benefit to our church. That's not love. No, 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 that is love. That's self-love. That's self-love. Because God's love doesn't see the benefit for me. God's love sees the benefit for you. It's a striking impartiality. You want to see God's love? See love, that, that loving people that can do nothing to you in return. That's, that's God's love. Uh, see, see anonymous love. When's the last time you just did something anonymously? No one else knew about it. You just did it because God told you to do it. That's, that's love. We had a lady in our church in Pennsylvania, a pastor in Pennsylvania for 20 years. She, she, uh, she's still there, by the way. And uh, she's a, a wonderful person. She's, she's mentally challenged. I mean, she has... Uh, She's, she, she's on the spectrum of autism. She says things that are untimely. She blurts things out that are a little bit embarrassing. She's just a single older lady that comes to our church. She's the only person ever in the history of our church that during prayer request time on a Wednesday night actually cursed at me <laughs> in prayer request time. And she just is not quite always all there. She's the only lady in our church, other than my own wife, who has kissed me on the lips. (laughs) Didn't see it coming. Not initiated by me. 
But I mean, just talking to her one day and she looked at me and she said, Pastor Skelly, I love you. She grabbed me by both ears and did that. I'm like, mm, thank you. <laughs> Looking around to see, I hope that one didn't get caught on camera. <laughs> one day she, she stood in our church lobby and she had a really sharp looking young man next to her. I wonder who that is. I've never seen him before. So I went over and I, I called her by name. I said, and who's this young man with you? And she looked at me and she said, that's my son. Well, I didn't know she had a son. That's my son. I, I, I said to him, well, it's good to have you. Are you from the area? No, I'm from, I'm from San Francisco, a long way away from Pennsylvania. I said, really? I said, uh, what brings you here? Well, I'm visiting my mother. I said, where do you go to church in San Francisco? I don't go to church. Matter of fact, the only reason I'm here is this. I just wanted to go to a place and meet the people who love my mother. I just wanted to go to the place and meet the people who love my mother. You won't send a stronger message to your community than by loving people that no one else loves. That was what David did. It was a persevering intentionality. It was a striking impartiality. But would you notice thirdly, in the mechanics of love, I think there was an extravagant liberality. You say, what do you mean by that, Pastor Skelly? A striking liberality. It's one thing to love somebody. It's another thing to love someone to the nth degree. And when David said, I'm going to love somebody for Jonathan's sake, it wasn't just give him a gift and go home. It wasn't just to share a meal and go home. No, it was, I, I'm going to be so good to you, uh, I'm going to give you everything that Saul ever owned. That was a lot of land. You get all the land of Saul. And I know you can't work all the land of Saul, so I'm going to give you Zeba. Zeba's like, really? Yeah, yeah, you. And all your kids, 15 sons, and all your servants, 20 of them. So you have a work crew now of 36 people that will work your land. And they will till your land and they will raise your crops. And by the way, Mephibosheth, you'll never need to eat one thing that comes from those crops. They'll just be a cash crop for you because you're going to eat at my table every single day until the day you die. Matter of fact, you're going to be one of my sons. That's what you're going to be. Boy, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not freely give us all things? Amen. Understand that salvation is just the beginning. But uh, here, here was Mephibosheth just enjoying all the benefits of sonship. That's a striking a liberality, extravagant liberality. What have we seen? We've seen the basis for loving forward. We've seen the mechanics of loving forward. But let me just say this lastly tonight. This is my favorite part. I call it the theology of loving forward. You say, what do you mean by that, theology? Theology of loving forward? Theology is really the study of God. And as we look at the Bible, we look at the God of the Bible. I don't worship the Bible. I worship the God of the Bible. The Bible is the revelation of that God. That's who that is. And so as we read the Bible, we read the grand redemptive narrative of the Bible. We see uh, Jesus in the pages of the Bible. We see uh, the whole Bible pointing like a big arrow at Jesus. And the Old Testament points forward and the Gospels say, here he is. And the epistles point back and it's all about him. And so what is the theology of loving forward? Well, what can we learn about, uh, well, I, I, I know we ha see a story about David and, and Jonathan and Mephibosheth and time and space, but well, what is the story for you and me? You already know. You already get the story. Well, because David is you. And Jonathan is Jesus. And Mephibosheth is the person you ought to be loving. That's, that's the theology of loving forward. Matter of fact, I, I see at least three distinct principles in this passage uh, that relate to your Christian life and mine. Here they are. Okay, number one, the theology of loving, of loving forward. Number one, loving forward connects the object of my love to the God who loves me. Loving forward connects the object of my love to God himself. If Pastor Hernan gave me $20, which 
I can't imagine he ever would, but, but if he did, by way of hypothetical illustration, if he gave me $20 and said, give this to Brother Miller, which I know you would never do that, okay? But, but hypothetically, if you did, and gave me $20, and I took that $20, and I went over here and said this, Brother Miller, here's $20. Would that make him happy? Sure it would. He's very superficial. It would make him very, very happy. <laughs> and he might even say, thank you. And I might even unwisely say, you're welcome, that's from me. <laughs> like many churches do. Like many churches do. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, we're a loving church. How much better would it have been to say, you know what? It was my privilege to, to give this to you, but this is from Hernan. This is from Hernan. He wanted me to give this to you. Boy, does that change the game? Well, we need a revival in, this is from God. He wanted me to give this to you. He loves me and he has given me his love. And now he expects for me to share that love with others. And this is from God. This is from God. You see, when you love forward, you connect, you connect the object of your love with, it, with, 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 with God himself. That's a theology of loving forward. But watch this, number two. Not only do you connect the object of love to God, but number two, loving forward demonstrates the mission of Christ. Loving forward demonstrates the mission of Christ. All throughout the, the, the chapter we see Jonathan is a good example of Jesus. And we love for Jonathan's sake. And Jesus came to, to die in my place. He died to take my identity on the cross so that I can have his identity uh, imputed to my record. I mean, that's the mission of Christ. And so it's, it's a theological principle. But here's my favorite one. Ready for this? Not only does loving forward connect the object of love to God, and number two, loving forward demonstrates the mission of Christ, but number three, loving forward is actually, this is my favorite part, loving forward is actually, loving forward is actually loving backward. Now, 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 don't miss this. If you've listened to nothing else, just tune in for the last three minutes right now. Loving forward is actually loving backward. All right, let me ask you a question. Can, can we love God the same way that God loves us? How, right? Can we love God the same way he loves us? Well, God loved me first, didn't he? Can I love him first? No. No, he beat me to it. Okay, God loves me when I'm unlovely. Can I love him when he's unlovely? And yet, somebody came to Jesus one day and said, Lord, Master, what is the greatest commandment in all the law? And what did Jesus say to him? Thou shalt love the Lord thy, what? With all thy mind, soul, heart, and strength. Uh, and then he said this, and the second, well, that wasn't the question though. That wasn't the question. The question was, what's the first and greatest commandment? And Jesus said, okay, here's the answer. Love God. But then he said, but, but, but and number two, love, love your neighbor. Now, why would he do that? The, that? That's not the question. The question was, what's the first commandment? And Jesus said, love God. And number two, love your neighbor. Why? why? Well, that wasn't the answer. That's not what the man was looking for. All right? Would it surprise you if the apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13 said, owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Not one word about loving God. N not one word about loving God. So it's almost as if Jesus said, number one, love God. Number two, love your neighbor. But Paul said, no, no, no. Love your neighbor, you did it all. And then again in Galatians 5, he said the same thing. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Galatians 5. Well, wait a minute. Nothing about loving God. I, I've, read the whole I've read the whole chapter. Love, love your neighbor, you've done it all. Love your neighbor, you've done it all. What about James? James chapter 2. If you fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. The royal law? The number one law? 
So if you love your neighbor, you've done it all. Romans 13 and verse 8. Galatians 5 and verse 24. James chapter 2, you've done it all. But wait a minute. Jesus said, number one, love God. Number two, love your neighbor. But it seems as if Paul said, number one, love your neighbor. Number one, love your neighbor. Number one, James, love your neighbor. So what is this? Is this then Jesus standing in opposition to Paul and James? Is this a Bible contradiction? Of course not. So a lawyer comes to Jesus one day and says, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, what do you think? The guy says, well, I think you ought to love God and love, love your neighbor. He got the answer right. Jesus said, yeah, try it out. You, you do that and you'll live. Because really, if you could love God perfectly and love your neighbor perfectly, you will have fulfilled the law. There really are two ways to heaven. You know that, right? Either trust the finished work of Jesus or you work it out yourself. How are you doing on that one? So Jesus said, yeah, do, do that and you'll live. And the man said, but who is my what? Now, why didn't he ask who God was? Because everyone erroneously thinks he loves God. And there's no way to qualify that. There's no way for me to qualify if you love God. There's no way for me to, to quantify if I love God. No way. Who's my neighbor? Oh, glad you asked. There, there's this guy that falls among thieves. Priest comes by. Levite comes by. Nobody helps. Samaritan comes by. He helps. So who was neighbor? Who, who was neighbor to that man? I suppose, I suppose him that showed mercy. You're right. Now go do that. The story of the Good Samaritan isn't a cute story about how to live better. The story of the Good Samaritan is Jesus condemning righteousness by works. Because nobody can live that way. Nobody can live that way. Jesus is showing the utter futility of living according to our flesh and trying to satisfy God that way. We need him and we need him desperately. So where does all this come in into loving forward is actually loving backward? Oh, because one day somebody will say to Jesus, Jesus, thank you. No, Jesus will say to somebody, thank you for visiting me in prison. And, and by the way, thank you for the, for the water and thank you for the food. And thank you for the clothes when I was naked. Thank you. And they'll say, Lord, when, when saw we the naked? And when saw we thee hungry and, and thirsty? When saw we thee in prison? And Jesus will say, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, like lame in the feet, unto the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto. You've done it what? Unto whom? Can I love God the way he loves me? And the answer is yes. Because loving your neighbor is the way you love God. The way you love your neighbor is the way you love God. What can you give God that he doesn't have? Can you love God when he's unlovely? No, but can you love people when they're unlovely? Can you love God first? But can you love other people first? Can you love other people when they never love you back? And God said this, and when you do that, you're not just doing that for me. You're doing that to me. I don't think there's any principle that excites me any more than that. That when you can anonymously love people who can never do anything for you, you are actually loving him. You're embracing him. You're giving to him. You're thanking him. You're loving forward by loving backward. Father, thank you for the opportunity today to just speak a few words from a very familiar passage. 
Thank you, Lord, for what it means to have been loved. Thank you, Lord, that somebody demonstrated the unfailing love to us. Thank you most of all for our Jonathan, the Lord Jesus, who loved us when we didn't realize it, who died for us when we didn't appreciate it. And then we found out about it. Thank you, Lord, for that. And Lord, I pray tonight on this very first night of our conference that you would help us to have, through your supernatural gifting, the very love of God to dispense to others. Lord, I pray that throughout this conference you would help us to look for ways, practical ways, by which we can love people and thereby love you. Lord, I pray that even now you would help us to identify some ones in our own lives whom we can express your love to. Our heads are bowed for a moment. Our eyes are closed. You've heard the message. I wonder tonight if God has spoken to you. Perhaps there's somebody in your life right now, maybe in your church congregation, maybe that nettlesome person at work, maybe that cantankerous neighbor that is so obnoxious, maybe that family member that is condescending or has written you off because of your radical Christian faith. Maybe somebody even closer than that. But God has spoken to us tonight. God has clearly showed us tonight that the way to love God is to love those people. Can you picture somebody right now in your own mind? Just right now in your heart. Picture somebody. It's one thing to say love people. It's another thing to say love that person. Can you picture them right now in your mind? I'm going to show the love of God to, now I want you to put that name in the blank right now. I'm going to demonstrate the love of God to, now do it, extravagantly, intentionally, impartially. Ask the Lord right now, Lord, would you help me? Would you empower me? God, would you embolden me? Lord, would you help me to demonstrate the very love of Christ to... Now, in a moment, we're going to stand together. I want to give you an opportunity tonight to make good on that prayer. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing tonight if we could come to an old-fashioned altar, kneel at our seat? The location really doesn't matter. But just say to a holy God, God, I want to say I love you by loving and tell him about it. I want to show you love God tonight by loving and you bring that person's name before the Lord and just see how God will help you to do it. Father, would you bless these dear friends tonight? Would you help us, Lord, tonight truly to love you by loving others? Thank you for a marvelous example in David. Thank you for an even better example in Jesus. Bless us and help us tonight, I pray. Let's stand to our feet tonight if we can. The music is playing. If God's touched your heart tonight as the music plays, would you come? Would you come and spend some time with the Lord? Lord, I want to love forward. I want to take somebody in my life. You've placed them upon my heart. Good. And Lord, here I am saying, God, embolden me, help me, strengthen me. Lord, may they see you because of what you've given me to give them. Not for their sake. I would never love them for their sake. They could do nothing for me. But Lord, I love them for Jonathan's sake. I love them for Jesus' sake. How about it? words.
amazing love. How can it be? Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for your love for us. Thank you, Lord, for making it clear. Not just talking about it. Not even just writing about it. But, Lord, demonstrating it in your death and passion on the cross. You gave us an exclamation point. Thank you, Lord, for that. Lord, I pray that the very love that you have for us, you would fill us with that love. Even as we heard our preacher talk about earlier. May it motivate us unfearfully to love those people whom you've placed in our circle of influence. Please, God, tonight, bless, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. What about Peter Schorsch? Thank you. Because that would have bothered you all night and it wouldn't have bothered me at all. <laughs> Peter Schorsch looked at that woman that night and said that, at that drive-thru and said, I will not pay it forward. Then he reached into his pocket and he took out $100. And he gave it to the woman at the drive-thru and said, now listen, you've been working all day long I want to give you as a, I want to give you this as a generous gift. What has happened today is this has just become a thing. And everyone is just paying for someone else's coffee because someone else did it. And it's just becoming rote and mundane and unfeeling. And so I'm going to stop it right now and give you this money out, out of my heart. And I wonder. But by the way, do you feel a little bit differently about Peter Shore? She sure did. <laughs> Here's the point. The point is, our love in our churches can become that. We just do what everyone else does, the least that's expected, and it takes somebody to come along and say, let's rediscover the lavish, generous love of God. And Peter taught us that lesson. Thank you for reminding me. I appreciate that.